We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in the last days, in these, in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as a woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are not a God who is in heaven asking us to come find you, that you are the God who comes down from heaven to earth to find us. And we pray that you would do that now uh, through your word, that you would find us in all the ways that we are figuring out what we believe that you would find us in all the ways that we are grappling with doubt, that you'd find us, Lord, in all the ways that we're hurting and looking for healing and for relief, for all the ways that we are feeling hopeless, that in all the ways that we are longing for renewal, the ways that we're struggling with loneliness. God, that you would find us wherever we are, and that you would show us your great love for us in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, good morning again, and welcome to Resurrection Oakland. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here. I would love to meet you after the service. Please come up to the front, and I'd love to say hi. Uh, We are taking a little break between Easter and our next sermon series, which is going to be on the fruit of the Spirit. And today we're looking at this Easter story, this post-Easter story. Last Sunday, we, we heard about how the resurrection changes everything, and today uh, God is going to tell us about how the resurrection not only changes everything, but how the resurrection changes you. And uh, I want to start by talking about this scene from the movie Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. There's this amazing scene in this movie. If you haven't seen it yet, spoiler alert, I am going to spoil this scene. It came out in 1989, so you had your chance. (laughs) So there's a scene where Indiana Jones is right near the the Holy Grail, which is what he's on a mission to find throughout the whole movie. And he is at this great chasm. And in this notebook uh, that his father gave him, with, with all the notes and research that he did about the location of the Holy Grail, uh, he, he reads that he needs to make a leap of faith into the chasm. And this scene just redefines what we think a leap of faith is. So Indiana Jones, he, he looks at it and he's skeptical, but he doesn't take a leap. He just reaches out in, in what looks to be thin air, and he puts his foot down, and to his surprise, his foot lands on something. It's like he's on solid ground, but it appears as if he's floating in air. And then the camera pans, and you see that he's actually standing on this very narrow bridge that's camouflaged to make it look as if there is nothing there. And Indiana Jones, in the classic way that he does, he just smirks, and he walks across. Now, this is what a lot of people think. A, th- th- this is what a lot of people think about faith. They think that faith requires a blind leap into a chasm, into thin air, and if you are able to make that leap, then you're rewarded. You're rewarded with validation that your faith is true. It's a, that we, we have this idea that faith is a test of your worthiness, and the problem with this is that if you make that leap of faith and you succeed, then you're going to smirk like Indiana Jones. And you're going to think like, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like those people who have no faith. I'm so glad that I had the faith to believe in God. But in, in the other, on the other side, if you believe, you, you make that leap of faith and things do not go the way that you think they will in your life, and instead of joy and peace, you get sorrow and hurt and devastation, you're going to feel like you're a failure. You're going you're to question what it was all for. And in today's passage, we encounter these two disciples These are two people that followed Jesus for three years throughout his ministry. And they're they're two people who are unwilling to make this leap of faith. And because of this, they feel like failures, which is why they're leaving Jerusalem. They're leaving the city that they went to with Jesus. 
and where all the other disciples still are, they're leaving because they feel like their faith was a, a waste of time. But by the end of this passage, we see these same disciples returning to Jerusalem. But this time, they're not returning with shame and guilt. They're returning with their hearts burning with joy and wonder and gratitude. And Jesus shows us through this resurrection story how he changes us and how he gives us true faith. He shows us how true faith works. Uh, and there's so much hope in this passage for us this morning. Uh, some of us in this room are convinced that there is no way to know whether or not God exists. And that's where I was for a period of my life. Not, not, not disbelieving God, but convinced that there was no way to know one way or another. Some of us are here and we're just barely hanging on to our faith in God. And we believe, but it's so hard to believe. And we're struggling with doubt. And some of us are not even thinking about faith because there's so much pain and sorrow in our life right now. And, and what Jesus shows us in this passage is that there is hope for every single one of us. And we're going to unpack this passage by looking at three things. We're going to look at how the disciples left Jesus. We're going to look at how they met Jesus. And we're going to look at how they returned to Jesus. So that's the outline for today. So let's start by looking at how they left Jesus. This passage begins with these two disciples again walking away from Jerusalem and they're going to Emmaus, which is where they grew up. Uh, one of them is named Cleopas. The other disciple is unnamed. We don't know who, they, who, who the other one is. What we do know is that these two disciples were not one of the original 12. There, were, there was a larger group of disciples besides the 12 disciples that followed Jesus throughout his ministry. And what that means is that, is that these disciples, they left their home, they left their families, they left their jobs to follow Jesus. And they followed him for three years and they learned at his feet. They witnessed him doing miracles. They served the poor. They served outcasts, people on the margins with Jesus. And at the end of all of that, they returned to Jerusalem with Jesus. And just one week earlier on Palm Sunday, they saw people throw their cloaks on the floor and wave palm branches as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And they were convinced that something big was going to happen and something big did happen, but not what they expected. They expected Jesus to ride into Jerusalem in victory, to cast out the Romans, to take his place as the rightful king of Israel, and they, they thought their long season of suffering was going to be over, but that's not how it happened. Jesus was arrested, he was tortured, he was mocked and humiliated, he was crucified, he died, and he was buried and put in a tomb that he did not even own. Now, it was Easter Sunday, just that morning, women had gone to the tomb, and we heard about this story of the women last Sunday, these women who found the tomb empty, and an angel that appeared to the women and told them that Jesus had risen. And Luke tells us that those women returned to the disciples and told them everything that they had seen and heard from the angel. But the disciples, the eleven, 
did not at first believe them. In fact, Luke tells us, and this makes the disciples look really bad, but Luke tells us that the disciples thought the women were speaking nonsense. They thought that they were out of their minds. Eventually, a, a small group of, of the 12 goes to the tomb to verify what the women said, and they find exactly what the woman described. They find that the tomb is empty. Now, these two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem knew all of this. How do we know? Well, they confess it in verses 22 to 24. They say, this is, this is what happened just today. There were eyewitness reports of people who had witnessed evidence, concrete evidence of the resurrection, and they did not believe it. They, they walked away from Jerusalem because they thought that Jesus, wherever he was, was not alive, that Jesus was still dead, and that all their years of following him were a waste of time. Today, we would say that these disciples were deconstructing their faith, right? Deconstruction is a word that Christians are using more and more to describe this process of questioning long-held beliefs, deep beliefs, and even experiences. Uh, and it means a lot of things to different people, but it usually begins with this idea that the things that we call faith are actually just social constructs, right? We, we, we believe because everybody around us was believing. We experienced some, some joy because everybody else was experiencing joy. We found meaning because other people created meaning in those spaces. And, you know, they, that's what these disciples were doing. They were deconstructing their faith. They were asking hard questions of their faith. They were asking things probably like, did any of the miracles that we witnessed actually happen? Was, was it just a hallucination? Was, did we talk ourselves into believing it because everybody else said that they saw what we thought we saw? They, they were questioning Jesus' teaching. Could I trust anything that Jesus actually taught me uh, when this was the outcome of our faith? Did we imagine it all? Did we convince ourselves to believe that these things were true? And they were asking these questions as they left Jerusalem and as they returned home to Emmaus. The last thing they expected was to meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus. In fact, they were so convinced that Jesus was still dead that when Jesus appeared right next to them and started talking to them, they didn't recognize him. When the proof of the resurrection is standing right in front of you and you still do not believe that it's true, what does that mean? It actually means that your unbelief is a social construct. It means that you are unable to handle the real evidence that is staring you in the face. And th that's the thing about unbelief. If faith is a human construct, and in some ways it is, Unbelief is also. If belief is formed in community, unbelief is also formed in community. A couple years ago, a high-profile pastor who very publicly renounced his faith in Christianity and wrote a deconstruction kit that you could buy for $270. Right? <laughs> and uh, to his credit... 
he pulled it just days after he released it because he got so much flack, not from the Christians, but from the non-Christians who told him, you're still acting like a pastor. And so he, he, he reneged on all of that, apologized profusely. But, it, it, you know, nobody, nobody processes their beliefs or doubts in isolation. We all do it in community, whether you're reading a deconstruction kit or you're doing it on Reddit or you're doing it at cafes. cafes. We, we, we process our faith and unbelief in community. And that means that all of us are capable of creating meaning, but also convincing ourselves that things that are true are untrue. Now, I used to wonder why God did not just appear to me to prove that he exists. Uh, and, and, and I thought, if God just appeared to me, then I, it would be so much easier to believe in him or follow him. But the truth is, all of us are capable of standing in the presence of God and still questioning his existence. So how can anyone know what to believe? Whether you are pers you're pursuing faith or wrestling with doubt. How can anyone know what is true? And this brings us to the second thing I want to look at today, how they met Jesus. As Jesus, uh, Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus next to these two disciples, and he's walking with them. And as he talks with them, he's actually deconstructing their unbelief. And it's interesting the way he does it, because did you notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's me, guys. It's Jesus. Don't you recognize me? Right? Look at me. And he did this with the, with the 11, remember, where he showed them his scars, and he doesn't do that with them. What does Jesus do? He takes them to the Bible. He has a Bible study with them. And he tells them that they're foolish, which sounds harsh, but he's not talking about how they're idiots because they don't recognize him. He's saying that they're foolish because they don't understand what God has been saying throughout the Bible since the beginning of time. He says that they are slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In order to meet Jesus, you see, they needed more than just his presence. They needed the Bible. And what does Luke tell us that Jesus taught them in this Bible study? It, it, Luke tells us that Jesus took them through Moses and the prophets. And that was the Hebrew way of describing the whole Old Testament. Moses is the first five books of the Bible. The prophets is the rest of it, right? And so he, Jesus took them through the whole Old Testament and told, taught them how every page of the Old Testament was actually about him, Jesus. And then he taught them why it was necessary that he die and rise again. Now, it's hard to believe that the resurrection happened, but do you know what's even harder than believing the fact of the resurrection? It's harder to believe that you need it. It's hard to believe that we are so hopelessly lost and deeply broken that the only thing that can make us whole, the only thing that can give us hope, the only thing that can save and rescue us is the death and resurrection of the Son of God. Now imagine that your friend uh, is meeting you for lunch and you're delighted because they say it's on them. And as you're ordering the food, he says, they, they, they tell you, order, order whatever you want. It's on me. 
And, uh, and so you order some, some really nice stuff. And uh, as it comes out, he says, you, you, you ask, like, well, how, how's everything going? And, and they tell you, oh, well, I just sold my house to pay for this meal. <laughs> and what are you going to say? You're not going to feel gra grateful. You're not going to say thank you. You're going to be like, uh, try to get your house back. Because <laughs> you didn't need to do that. This is just lunch. Inflation's bad, I know. <laughs> but you didn't need to sell your house to buy me lunch. It's unnecessary. Now, one of the reasons that we, some of us, and probably all of us in one way or another, struggle with believing that God's resurrection matters, that it's the reason why it's not affecting us and changing us right now, the reason why we don't feel Jesus' presence in our life, it's, it's, it's not because we have doubts that this could happen. It's actually we deep down have trouble believing that we need the resurrection. Some of you believe in the resurrection, but God still feels distant from you. The news of Christ's death and resurrection feels old and it feels irrelevant. But what if the reason Jesus doesn't seem present in your life is not because he's not there, but because you don't believe that you need him to be there? It's hard to believe in the resurrection if you don't think that you need it. But what if you do need it? What if you are so broken and so lost that the only thing that can save you is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? What if what you really need is not a free lunch, but salvation and the reversal of death and the new heavens and the new earth? And what if it's true? What if God came in the flesh and the Son of God lived the life that you could never live, died the death that you deserved, and rose again to be with you forever? See, Jesus took them to the Bible. He didn't first tell them, hey, it's me. He took them to the Bible. Because the Bible teaches us that we need the death and resurrection of Jesus and we need the Bible to teach this to us because it's not self-evident. We will never come to that conclusion on our own. We need God to teach us. Jesus understood that it's harder to believe that we need the resurrection than it is to believe that it actually happened. So he taught the disciples from the Bible. And once the disciples realized what the Bible was saying, they were ready to meet him brings us to the last thing that I want to talk about this morning is how they turned back to Jesus, how they returned to Jesus. Now, at the end of this trip, they make it to Emmaus, and they, they, they make this long seven-mile hike from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and uh, once they arrive there, it's starting to get dark, and it's supper time. And so they invited Jesus to say, they Jesus looked like Jesus was going to keep going, and so they, they told him, it's, it's getting late, stay with us, and they had supper with him. And then Jesus took bread, and then he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And Luke tells us in this moment when Jesus did this, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened, and finally, for the first time, they realized who Jesus was. They recognized him. They saw that it was Jesus. Now, they were not part of the original 12, so they were not in the upper room with 
having Passover with Jesus, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, what, what, what they recognized is something that happened in Luke 9, the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus did exactly the same thing. He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples to feed the 5,000. And they, as Jesus did this, they recognized who he was and they believed that it was true, that Jesus had risen from the grave, that death had been conquered, that God was with them, and that God had followed them out of Jerusalem all the way to Emmaus. And this changed everything. The moment the disciples recognized Jesus, they completely reversed course. They, they, they walked for hours all day to get to Emmaus, uh, which was their destination. It was nighttime. They were, they were going to call it a day. They were going to have supper and then go to sleep. But after they recognized Jesus, they could not do that. They threw that plan out the window, and they got on the road and headed back to Jerusalem. Now, in the ancient Near East, people did not travel roads at night. It wasn't safe. It's kind of like walking in our neighborhood at two in the morning by yourself. It was not a safe thing to do. People did not do it unless there was a desperate emergency. And these two disciples were desperate to get back to Jerusalem. The moment they realized with Jesus, that they were talking with Jesus, Luke tells us that something crazy happened. Jesus vanished. And if you read the New Testament, things like that happen. Uh, Jesus' resurrection body was so glorious that he sometimes just vanished. He could actually walk through walls. Really strange things happened with Jesus after the resurrection. And Jesus just vanishes, and it seems anticlimactic, but the disciples are convinced that they are going to see him again because he is risen and he is alive. And so they return to Jerusalem and they go to tell the other disciples, it's true, we have met him, we've seen him, Christ is risen and nothing is going to be the same. They made a complete U-turn. When they left Jerusalem, they were leaving with doubt and shame and guilt. But now as they were returning to Jerusalem, they were leaving behind their friends, their family, and they were returning with hearts aflame, with joy and with gratitude. What happened? How did this change occur? They knew that there would be trouble in Jerusalem. The other disciples were hiding because the Roman soldiers were still looking for Jesus' followers. Why go in the middle of the night? Why go back to Jerusalem? Why? What changed them dramatically? Well, of course, they knew and saw that the resurrection was real and that it happened. But even more than that, they saw how Jesus followed them all the way to Emmaus. They saw and believed that they could never lose Jesus. They, they, they realized that no matter how far they tried to run because Christ is risen, he would run after them. They realized that they possessed in Jesus a love that would never let them go. There's this uh, great, my favorite part of the book, this, this great scene in the book, The Fellowship of the Ring, which is the first book of the Lord of the Rings series. 
is uh, this part where Frodo, who's one of the main characters, Frodo's a hobbit, kind of a small human being, and uh, he uh, is, has been given this mission to take the evil ring of power to Mount Doom to destroy it. And uh, they, there's been a lot of loss, there's been a lot of hardship, um, and there's been a lot of death uh, in this journey. And, and Frodo decides that he doesn't want anyone else to get hurt, he doesn't want anyone else to die for him. And so Frodo sneaks away and decides that he's going to go to Mount Doom by himself to destroy this evil ring of power. But his best friend, Samwise Gamgee, realizes that Frodo is nowhere to be found, and so he goes to the river, and he sees that Frodo is already on the boat. And, and Frodo sees Sam, but he, he's, he, he thinks that there's no way that Sam's going to get to the boat because hobbits actually have this genetic makeup that makes their bodies too dense to float in water, right? And so hobbits cannot swim. They can't learn to swim. They go in the water, and they just sink like a stone. So he thinks, there's no way that Samwise is going to come after me now. But Samwise, without hesitation, jumps into the water. And he immediately starts drowning. And he says, don't worry, Mr. Frodo. Mr. Frodo, I'm on my way. Don't worry. And Frodo now has a decision to make. He's either going to reach in and help Sam onto the boat, or he's going to let his best friend die. And so he reaches in, and he pulls Sam into the boat. And this is what he says to him. He says, it's no good trying to escape you but I'm glad, Sam. I cannot tell you how glad. Come along. It's plain that we were meant to go together. I love this. I love how Sam, even though it meant certain death, could not let his friend go alone to Mount Doom. And in the resurrection, what God is saying to you, to every single one of us who puts their hope in Jesus, is that you were meant to go together. That Jesus gave up the security and safety and glory of heaven to follow you wherever you should go to all that you makes all the things that make you guilty, to all the messy parts of your life, to all the ways that you have failed, to follow you through all the hardships that you have faced and will face in this life, that he will follow you into the grave to pull you out of it because you are not meant to be alone. You are meant to go together with Jesus, the risen Christ, and there is no way once you have him that you can get rid of him because he will follow you to the ends of the earth. And that's what this table here proclaims to us. This table is a proclamation not only of what Jesus has done, and more than even just a proclamation of what he will do. This declares what Jesus has done, that he came and died and rose again. It proclaims what Jesus will do, that he's coming again to make all things new. But it also proclaims to us what Jesus is doing right now. And right now, Jesus is with us us in this meal. He is communing with us right now because he loves every single one of us who put our hope in him more than he loves his own life. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup 
And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection. God, we thank you that in the death and resurrection of Jesus in his life and in his communing with us at this table through this simple meal, Lord, that you give us what every single one of us most needs and what none of us could have ever asked from you. And we thank you that, Lord, that we didn't have to ask because you gave yourself to us willingly, completely, without hesitation. And God, we pray that you would help us to believe this deep in our souls, that whatever we're facing this morning, that we would know that we are loved, that we are not alone, and that we have a sure future, that we would boldly go to Jerusalem, whatever that might mean for us, Lord, that we would face all that we are dealing with, knowing, God, that you are with us and that we can't get rid of you. We thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to come forward for the Lord's Supper. We'll begin in the front row, and we'll work our way back, which means if you are in these outside rows, you just follow the row that you're in. We come forward the center aisle, and when you get to the front, we'll have two stations, uh, one on your left and one on your right. At the first station, you'll find bread. If you need a gluten-free option, you can find that on the white table. On the second station, you'll find red wine. And if you need a non-alcoholic option, you'll also find clear grape juice on the tray. When you get to the front, if you're not sure which is which, just ask, and uh, the person serving you will help you. We return to our seats using the outside aisles and hold on to the bread and wine so we could all partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus as a family, as a spiritual family. If you are here and you are not yet convinced of the claims of Christianity, we are delighted that you are here. Uh, this is a church where you can belong before you believe. And what that means for you right now is that you don't need to come up to take the Lord's Supper because when you take the Lord's Supper, you're saying, I believe all these things are true. And if you are not ready to do that, please don't. Please remain seated where you are. And if you look in the back of our worship guides, we have some prayers for you to read about, to think about, consider the things that you've heard. If you would like to ask questions about Christianity. We have a great event this Friday uh, where you can come and ask your questions. If that date doesn't work for you, Brent and I would love to meet up with you to talk about what all these things mean that we've been talking and singing about. If you are here and you believe in Jesus, no matter what your week looked like this week, no matter what your morning looked like this week, no matter how much you've messed up, no matter how far you've been running from Jesus, Jesus has come. He says, come. I'm with you, I'm at your side, I love you and I accept you and I am at work in your life in ways that you need to accept and see and believe. And so come, taste and see God's goodness at this table. These are the gifts of God, they're for the people of God. Thanks be to God.